You are listening to Masterpieces of Mystery, Riddle Stories, edited by Joseph Lewis French. This audiobook is brought to you by Kriti and is narrated by Neha Toshniwal. Story number two, The Great Valdis Sapphire. I know more about it than anyone else in the world, its present owner not accepted. I can give its whole history from the Singhalese who found it, the Spanish adventurer who stole it, the cardinal who bought it, the pope who graciously accepted it, the favoured son of the church who received it, the gay and giddy duchess who pawned it, down to the eminent prelate who now holds it in trust as a family heirloom. It will occupy a chapter to itself in my forthcoming work on historic stones, where full details of its weight, size, colour and value may be found. At present, I am going to relate an incident in its history which, for obvious reasons, will not be published. Which, in fact, I trust the reader will consider related in strict confidence. I had never seen the stone itself when I began to write about it, and it was not till one evening last spring, while staying with my nephew, Sir Thomas Acton, that I came within measurable distance of it. A dinner party was impending, and at my instigation, the Bishop of North Church and Miss Panton, his daughter and heiress, were among the invited guests. The dinner was a particularly good one, I remember that distinctly. In fact, I felt myself partly responsible for it, having engaged a new cook, a talented young Italian, pupil of the admirable old chef at my club. We had gone over the menu carefully together with a result refreshing in its novelty, but not so daring as to disturb the minds of the innocent country guests who were bidden thereto. The first spoonful of soup was reassuring, and I looked to the end of the table, to exchange a congratulatory glance with Leta. What was amiss? No response. Her pretty face was flushed, her smile constrained. She was talking with quite unnecessary impressment to her neighbour, Sir Harry Lander, though Leta is one of those few women who understand the importance of letting a man settle down tranquilly and with an undisturbed mind to the business of dining, allowing no topic of serious interest to come on before the releve and reserving mere conversational brilliancy for the entremet. Guests, all right? No disappointments? I had gone through the list with her, selecting just the right people to be asked to meet the landors, our new neighbours. Not a mere cumbrous county gathering, nor yet a showy imported party from town, but a skilful blending of both. Had anything happened already? I had been late for dinner and missed the arrivals in the drawing room. It was Leta's fault. She has got into a way of coming into my room and putting the last touches to my toilet. I let her, for I am doubtful of myself nowadays after many years' dependence on the best of valets. Her taste is generally beyond dispute, But today she had indulged in a feminine vagary that provoked me and made me late for dinner. Are you going to wear your sapphire, Uncle Paul? She cried in a tone of dismay. 
Oh, why not the ruby? You would have your way about the table decorations, I gently reminded her. With that service of ground derby repousse and orchids, the ruby would look absolutely barbaric. Now, if you would have had the limoji set, white candles and a yellow silk center. Oh, but I am so disappointed. I wanted the bishop to see your ruby or one of your engraved gems. My dear, it is on the bishop's account I put this on. You know his daughter is heiress of the great Valdez Sapphire. Of course she is. And when he has the charge of a stone three times as big as yours, what's the use of wearing it? The ruby, dear Uncle Paul, please. She was desperately in earnest, I could see, and considering the obligations which I am supposed to be under to her and Tom, it was but a little matter to yield, but involved a good deal of extra trouble. Studs, sleeve links, watch guard, all carefully selected to go with the sapphire, had to be changed. The emerald which I chose as a compromise requiring more florid accompaniments of a deeper tone of gold, and the dinner hour struck as I replaced my jewel case. The one relic left me of a once handsome fortune in my fireproof safe. The emerald looked very well that evening, however. I kept my eyes upon it for comfort when Miss Panton proved trying. She was a lean, yellow, dictatorial young woman with no conversation. I spoke of her father's celebrated sapphires. My sapphires, she amended sourly, though I am legally debarred from making any profitable use of them. She furthermore informed me that she viewed them as useless gods, which ought to be disposed of for the benefit of the heathen. I gave the subject up and while she discoursed of the work of the Blue Ribbon Army among the boss Yemans, I tried to understand a certain dislocation in the arrangement of the table. Surely we were more or less in number than we should be? Opposite side, all right. Who was extra on ours? I leaned forward. Lady Landor on one side of Tom, on the other, who? I caught glimpses of plumes pink and green nodding over a dinner plate, and beneath them a pink nose in a green visage with a nutcracker chin altogether unknown to me. A sharp grey eye shot a sideway glance down the table and caught me peeping, and I retreated, having only marked in addition two claw-like hands with pointed ruffles and a mass of brilliant rings, making good play with a knife and fork. Who was she? At intervals, a high acid voice could be heard addressing Tom, and a laugh that made me shudder. It had the quality of the scream of a bird of prey, or the yell of a jackal. I had heard that sort of laugh before, and it always made me feel like a defenseless rabbit. Every time it sounded, I saw Leta's fan flutter more furiously, and her manner grew more nervously animated. Poor dear girl, I never in all my recollection wished a dinner at an end so earnestly so as to assure her of my support and sympathy, though without the faintest conception why either should be required. The ices at last. A menu card folded in two was laid beside me. 
I read it unobserved. Keep the bee from joining us in the drawing room. The bee? Ah, the bishop, of course. With pleasure. But why? And how? That's the question. Never mind why. Could I lure him into the library, the billet room, the conservatory? I doubted it, and I doubted still more what I should do with him when I got him there. The bishop is a grand and stately ecclesiastic of the medieval type, broad-chested, deep-voiced, martial of bearing. I could picture him charging mace in hand at the head of his vassals or delivering over a dissenter of the period to the rack and thumbscrew, but not pottering among rare editions, tall copies and gloria bindings, nor condescending to a quiet cigar among the tree ferns and orchids. Leta must and should be obeyed, I swore nevertheless. Even if I were driven to lock the door in the fearless old fashion of a bygone day and declared I'd shoot any man who left while a drop remained in the bottles. The ladies were rising. The lady at the head of the line smirked and nodded her pink plumes coquettishly at Tom, while her hawk's eyes roved keen and predatory over us all. She stopped suddenly, creating a block and confusion. Ah, the dear bishop, you there, and I never saw you. You must come and have a long chat presently. Bye-bye. She shook a fan at him over my shoulder and tripped on. Later, passing me last, gave me a look of profound despair. Lady Cartwitchet, somebody exclaimed. I couldn't believe my eyes. Thought she was dead or in penal servitude. Never should have expected to see her here, said someone else behind me confidentially. What? Carvichet? Not the mother of the Carvichet who... Just so, the Carvichet who... Tom assented with a shrug. We needn't go farther, as she's my guest. Just my luck. I met them at Buxton, thought them uncommonly good company. In fact... Carvichet laid me under a great obligation about a horse I was nearly let in for buying and gave them a general invitation here, as one does, you know. Never expected her to turn up with her luggage this afternoon just before dinner to stay a week or a fortnight if Carvichet can join her. A groan of sympathy ran round the table. It can't be helped. I've told you this just to show that I shouldn't have asked you here to meet this sort of people of my own free will. But as it is, please say no more about them. The subject was not dropped by any means, and I took care that it should not be. At our end of the table, one story after another went buzzing around. Sotto voce, out of deference to Tom, but perfectly audible. Car widget? Ah, yes. Mixed up in that Rawlings divorce case, wasn't he? A bad lot turned out of the dragoon guards for cheating at cards or picking pockets or something. Remember the row at the Cerulean Club? Scandalous exposure and that forged letter business. Oh, that was the mother. Prosecution hushed up somehow. Ought to be serving her 14 years and that business of poor Farrar's. The banker got hold of some of his secrets and blackmailed him till he blew his brains out. 
It was so exciting that I clean forgot the bishop till a low gasp at my elbow startled me. He was lying back in his chair, his mighty shaven jowl a ghastly white, his fierce, imperious eyebrows drooping limp over his fish-like eyes, his splendid figure shrunk and contracted. He was trying with a shaken hand to pour out wine. The decanter clattered against the glass and the wine spilled on the cloth. I'm afraid you find the room too warm. Shall we go into the library? He rose hastily and followed me like a lamb. He recovered himself once we got into the hall and affably rejected all my proffers of brandy and soda, medical advice, everything else my limited experience could suggest. He only demanded his carriage directly and that Miss Panton should be summoned forthwith. I made the best use I could of the time left me. I'm uncommonly sorry you do not feel equal to staying a little longer, my lord. I counted on showing you my new trifles of precious stones, the salvage from the wreck of my possessions, nothing in comparison with your own collection. The bishop clasped his hand over his heart. His breath came short and quick. A return of that dizziness, he explained with a faint smile. You are thinking of the Valdez Sapphire, are you not? Some day, he went on with forced composure, I may have the pleasure of showing it to you. It is at my banker's just now. Miss Panton's steps were heard in the hall. You are well known as a connoisseur, Mr. Acton, he went on hurriedly. Is your collection valuable? If so, keep it safe. Don't trust a ring of your hand or the key of your jewel case out of your pocket till the house is clear again. The words rushed from his lips in an impetuous whisper. He gave me a meaning glance and departed with his daughter. I went back to the drawing room, my head swimming with bewilderment. What? The dear bishop gone? screamed Lady Carwichet from the central ottoman where she sat surrounded by most of the gentlemen, all apparently well entertained by her conversation. And I wanted to talk over old times with him so badly. His poor wife was my greatest friend, Mira Montanaro, daughter of the great banker, you know. It's not possible that miserable little prig is my poor Mira's girl, the heiress of all the Montanaros in a black lace gown with worth two pence. When I think of her mother's beauty and her toilets, does she ever wear the sapphires? Has anyone ever seen her in them? Eleven large stones in a lovely antique setting and the great Valdez sapphire worth thousands and thousands for the pendant. No one replied. I wanted to get a rise out of the bishop tonight. It used to make him so mad when I wore this. She fumbled among the laces at her throat and clawed out a pendant that hung to a velvet band around her neck. I fairly gasped when she removed her hand. A sapphire of irregular shape flashed out its blue lightning on us. Such a stone! A true, rich, cornflower blue, even by that wretched artificial light, with soft velvety depths of colour and dazzling clearness of tint, in its lights and shade, 
a stone to remember. I stretched out my hand involuntarily, but Lady Carwitchet drew back with a coquettish squeal. Uh, no, no, you mustn't look any closer. Tell me what you think of it now. Isn't it pretty? Superb, was all I could ejaculate. Staring at the azure splendor of that miraculous jewel in a sort of trance. She gave a shrill, cackling laugh of mockery. The great Mr. Acton taken in by a bit of polite royal gym crackery? What an advertisement for Boguette's A Company. They are perfect artists and frauds. Don't you remember their stand at the first Paris exhibition? They had imitations there of every celebrated stone, but I never expected anything made by man could delude Mr. Acton. Never. And she went off into another mocking cackle, and all the idiots around her haw-hawed knowingly, as if they had seen the joke all along. I was too bewildered to reply, which was on the whole lucky. I suppose I mustn't tell why I came to give quite a big sum in francs for this she went on, tapping her closed lips with her closed fan and cocking her eye at us all like a parrot wanting to be coaxed to talk. It's a queer story. I didn't want to hear her anecdote, especially as I saw she wanted to tell it. What I did want was to see that pendant again. She had thrust it back among her laces, only the loop which held to the velvet being visible. It was set with three small sapphires, and even from a distance I clearly made them out to be imitations and poor ones. I felt a queer thrill of self-mistrust. Was this large stone no better? Could I, even for an instant, have been dazzled by a sham and a sham of that quality? The events of the evening had flurried and confused me. I wished to think them over in quiet. I would go to bed. My rooms at the manor are the best in the house. Later will have it so. I must explain their position for a reason to be understood later. My bedroom is in the southeast angle of the house. It opens on one side into a sitting room in the east corridor, the rest of which is taken up by the suite of rooms occupied by Tom and Leta. And on the other side into my bathroom, the first room in the south corridor, where the principal guest chambers are, to one of which it was originally the dressing room. Passing this room, I noticed a couple of housemaids preparing it for the night and discovered with a shiver that Lady Carwidget was to be my next-door neighbour. It gave me a turn. The bishop's strange warning must have unnerved me. I was perfectly safe from her ladyship. The disused door into her room was locked and the key safe on the housekeeper's bunch. It was also undiscoverable on her side, the recess in which it stood being completely filled by a large wardrobe. On my side hung a thick soundproof portiere. Nevertheless, I resolved not to use that room while she inhabited the next one. I removed my possessions, fastened the door of communication with my bedroom, and dragged a heavy ottoman across it. Then I stored away my emerald in my strong box. It is built into the wall of my sitting room and masked by the lower part of an old carved oak bureau.
I put away even the rings I wore habitually, keeping out only an inferior cat's eye for workday wear. I had just made all safe when Leta tapped at the door and came in to wish me good night. She looked flushed and harassed and ready to cry. Uncle Paul, she began, I want you to go up to town at once and stay away till I send for you. My dear, I was too amazed to expostulate. We've got a pestilence among us, she declared, her foot tapping the ground angrily. And the least we can do is to go into quarantine. Oh, I'm so sorry and so ashamed. The poor bishop. I'll take good care that no one else shall meet that woman here. You did your best for me, Uncle Paul, and managed admirably, but it was all no use. I hoped against hope that what between the dusk of the drawing room before dinner and being put at opposite ends of the table, we might get through without a meeting. But my dear, explain, why shouldn't the bishop and Lady Carwichet meet? Why is it worse for him than anyone else? Why? I thought everybody had heard of the dreadful wife of his who nearly broke his heart. If he married her for her money, it served him right. But Lady Landor says she was very handsome and really in love with him at first. Then Lady Carwichet got hold of her and led her into all sorts of mischief. She left her husband. He was only a rector with a country living in those days and went to live in town, got into a horrid fast set and made herself notorious. You must have heard of her. I heard of her sapphires, my dear, but I was in Brazil at the time. I wish you had been at home. You might have found her out. She was furious because her husband refused to let her wear the great Valdez Sapphire. It had been in the Montanaro family for some generations and her father settled it first on her and then on her little girl, the bishop ring trustee. He felt obliged to take away the little girl and send her off to be brought up by some old aunts in the country and he locked up the sapphire. Lady Carwichet tells as a splendid joke how they got the copy made in Paris and it did just as well for the people to stare at. No wonder the bishop hates the very name of the stone. How long will she stay here? I asked dismally. Till Lord Carwichet can come and escort her to Paris to visit some American friends. Goodness knows when that will be. Do go up to town, Uncle Paul. I refused indignantly. The very least I could do was to stand by my poor young relatives in their troubles and help them through. I did so. I wore that inferior cat's eye for six weeks. It is a time I cannot think of even how without a shudder. The more I saw of that terrible old woman, the more I detested her and we saw a very great deal of her. Leta kept her word and neither accepted nor gave invitations all that time. We were cut off from all society but that of old General Fairford, who would go anywhere and meet anyone to get a rubber after dinner, the doctor, a sporting widower, and the doubleese, a giddy, rather rackety young couple who had taken the dower house for a year. Lady Carwichet seemed perfectly content. She revelled in the soft living and good fare of the manor house, the drives in Leta's big barouche and Domenico's dinners, as one to whom short commons were not unknown. 
She had a hungry way of grabbing and grasping at everything she could. The shilling she won at whist, the best fruit at dessert, the posted stamps in the library inkstand that was infinitely suggestive. Sometimes I could have pitied her. She was so greedy, so spiteful, so friendless. She always made me think of some wicked old pirate putting into a peaceful port to provision and repair his battered old hulk, obliged to live on friendly terms with the natives, but his piratical old nostrils as sniff for plunder and his piratical old soul longing to be off marauding once more. When would that be? Not till the arrival in Paris of a distinguished American friends of whom we heard a great deal. Charming people, the Bokums of Chicago, the American branch of the English Beauchamps, you know? They seemed to be taking an unconsciousable time to get there. She would have insisted on being driven over to North Church to call at the palace, but that the bishop was understood to be holding confirmations at the other end of the diocese. I was alone in the house one afternoon, sitting by my window, toying with the key of my safe and wondering whether I dare treat myself to a peep at my treasures when a suspicious movement in the park below caught my attention. A black figure certainly dodged from behind one tree to the next and then into the shadow of the park, paling instead of keeping to the footpath. It looked queer. I caught up my field glass and marked him at one point where he was bound to come into the open for a few steps. He crossed the strip of turf with giant strides and got into cover again, but not quick enough to prevent me recognizing him. It was, great heavens, the bishop! In a soft hat pulled over his forehead with a long cloak and a big stick, he looked like a poacher. Guided by some mysterious instinct, I hurried to meet him. I opened the conservatory door and in he rushed like a hunted rabbit. Without explanation, I led him up the white staircase to my room, where he dropped into a chair and wiped his face. You are astonished, Mr. Acton, he panted. I will explain directly. Thanks. He tossed off the glass of brandy I had poured out without waiting for the qualifying soda and looked better. I'm in serious trouble. You can help me. I've had a shock today, a grievous shock. He stopped and tried to pull himself together. I must trust you implicitly, Mr. Acton. I have no choice. Tell me what you think of this. He drew a case from his breast pocket and opened it. I promised you, you should see the Valdez Sapphire. Look here. The Valdez Sapphire. A great big shining lump of blue crystal, flawless and of perfect color. That was all. I took it up, breathed on it, drew out my magnifier, looked at it in one light and another. What was wrong with it? I could not say. Nine experts out of ten would undoubtedly have pronounced the stone genuine. I, by virtue of some mysterious instinct that has hitherto always guided me aright, was the unlucky tenth. I looked at the bishop. His eyes met mine. There was no need of spoken word between us. Has Lady Carvichet shown you her sapphire? was his most unexpected question. She has, 
Now, Mr. Acton, on your honour as a connoisseur and a gentleman, which of the two is the Valdez? Not this one. I could say not else. You were my last hope, he broke off and dropped his face on his folded arms with a groan that shook the table on which he rested while I stood dismayed at myself for having let so hasty a judgment escape me. He lifted a ghastly countenance to me. She vowed she would see me ruined and disgraced. I made her my enemy by crossing some of her schemes once and she never forgives. She will keep her word. I shall appear before the world as a fraudulent trustee. I can neither produce the valuable confided to my charge nor make the loss good. I have only an incredible story to tell. He dropped his head and groaned again. Who will believe me? I will, for one. Ah, you. Yes, you know her. She took my wife from me, Mr. Acton. Heaven only knows what the hold was that she had over poor Mera. She encouraged her to set me at defiance and eventually to leave me. She was answerable for all the scandalous folly and extravagance of poor Mira's life in Paris. Spare me the telling of the story. She left her at last to die alone and uncared for. I reached my wife to find her dying of a fever from which Lady Carvichet and her crew had fled. She was raving in delirium and died without recognizing me. Some trouble she had been in which I must never know oppressed her. At the very last, she roused from a long stupor and spoke to the nurse. Tell him to get the sapphire back. She stole it. She has robbed my child. Those were her last words. The nurse understood no English and treated them as wandering. But I had heard them and knew she was sane when she spoke.